millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an RNZ podcast. In 2021, it'll be 50 years since New Zealand's first and only aluminium smelter was fired up. We started the pots, I think, in April, on the uh, 23rd of April, 1971. 50 years of cutting-edge industry. They are really at the top of their game. <laughs> we can be proud of the All Blacks and we can be proud of the people at TY Point, I think. And controversy. I suggested that Mr Horriot got by by virtually deceiving the public of New Zealand about the situation. It might also be the smelters last year in operation. The breaking news, they have announced this morning that they've started planning for the wind-down of operations and the eventual closure of the TY Point Aluminium smelter. Hi, I'm Liz Garten and in Eyewitness this week, we're revisiting the opening of the TY Point smelter in Bluff. I would like, first of all... To extend a warm welcome to all of you who have joined us this morning in order to be present at this official opening ceremony. Of course, the opening isn't really the start of the story. For that, you have to go back about 10 years to the 1950s when Consolidated Zinc, an Australian mining company, discovered a heap of bauxite in the far north of Queensland. So bauxite is the raw material. From it, you extract alumina, and then you buff that into the smelter to produce aluminium. It's obviously way more complicated than that, but let's just stick with the basics for now. Now, the key thing you do need to know is that to smelt aluminium, you need piles and piles of electricity, like enough to run a decent-sized town. So Consolidated Zinc has all this bauxite and starts looking for somewhere to build a smelter somewhere close to a cheap electricity source. Last evening, I signed as Minister of Works on behalf of the New Zealand government an agreement with Consolidated Zinc Proprietary Limited of Australia. It's 1960, and this is the aptly named Hugh Watt. This agreement he's talking about gives Consolidated Zinc the go-ahead to build a hydropower station and an aluminium smelter here in New Zealand. The power station on Lake Manapuri in the pristine Fiordland National Park will fuel the smelter on Tiwai Point, a windswept peninsula near Bluff. That could lead to the establishment in the South Island of New Zealand of a new industry of world significance. Unfortunately, the company, which had become known as Camelco, hit hard times, and by 1963 it couldn't afford to do both projects. So the government offered to build the power station. It was the start of a partnership that spanned half a century. And I guess you could say at times it's had its ups and downs. Like at the beginning, when Camelco wanted to raise the lake to ensure better electricity production. A lake which sits in a protected area, an area considered of national importance. The islands of Manapuri, which are about some 26 Most of them are vegetated, and that forest has got an interesting community of orchids, particularly two species of orchid, which normally grow up in the tops of the trees. They're called epiphytes, and on these islands they were growing at ground level. 
This is Alan Mark. Today he's Sir Alan and an emeritus professor at Otago University. But back in the late 60s he was a... a budding ecologist. And in the summer of 69-70 he oversaw a study of Lake Manapodi. It was clear to us that the issue was uh, complicated. Sir Alan's report found that raising the lake would have terrible consequences and he went public about it. By our assessment... The increase in lake levels would only increase the annual generation of electricity by 4.5% on an average annual basis, which we considered was not essential to the smelter and the cost ecologically, environmentally and aesthetically uh, would have been major. Now this put the government in a bit of a difficult situation. You see, it really wanted the smelter a new industry for the country, a diversification from our reliance on agriculture. And it had already agreed to raise the lake. But the damage it would do was too much for the New Zealand public to stomach. A conservation movement was born, spawning our biggest protest action ever. One petition about it got 250,000 signatures. About 10% of the population of New Zealand at the time. So it was very obvious that the public of New Zealand was strongly opposed to the lake raising. The devastation that is the inevitable camp follower of all construction works is not an attractive sight in this hitherto untouched country. It is part of the price of progress, and progress at Manapuri is presenting a pretty large bill. Early current affairs shows like Compass covered the story, and the welfare of the lake became an election issue. Eventually there was a commission of inquiry, and Sir Allen was called to give evidence. I was cross-examined about the issue of going public. Yeah, it was um, pretty penetrating, really, and, and difficult to follow. And um, I would have to say the university, from the vice-chancellor down, was um, totally supportive and uh, not undermining you know, my credibility because there were certainly many attempts to undermine my credibility. Yeah, it was um, pretty sobering at the time. National would go on to lose the 1973 election and the incoming Labour government would create the Guardians of the Lake. It's a statutory body which still gives advice on how to ensure power while protecting Fiordland's lakes. And the government made Sir Allen the chair. While all this was going on, Kamalko was getting on with building its smelter at Tiwai Point. Now, after the years of doubt and indecision, this windswept wasteland of Tiwai Peninsula, opposite Bluff Harbour, is about to be subjected to activity as intense as any ever seen in New Zealand. Hello. This is John Marshall. Through the 60s, he was working for a sawmill over to Atapari Way, on the edge of Fiordland, to the west of Bluff. I was one of their delivery drivers, so I was called upon one day to take a truckload of timber down to T.Y. Point. Never heard of it before. That first visit was pretty memorable. Nothing there at all. When I arrived in the morning, it had to be about 10 o'clock or a bit after 10 o'clock, and there was nobody there at all, nobody around. Couldn't see anything much. And uh, I was just wandering around looking for somebody to talk to, and then all of a sudden there was a great roar and a lot of black smoke. And every, all the contractors have started their bulldozers and motor scrapers up again. The air was just full of black smoke. Mm. Yeah, that was uh, the very beginning of T.Y. Point. The smelter felt like the start of something big. There was a, a 
eager anticipation that it was going to create all the jobs and uh, what have you, at, you know, in the province at the time. But nobody w was really sure about what was going to happen, if you know what I mean. It was the unknown. And TY Point came through. The number of jobs it created was, was huge for this province here. It meant a lot of the young people didn't have to leave the province for work and what have you, so, yeah. Low on effect was uh, was huge. I would have come back there in about October, November 1970. Yes, uh, and our daughter was born uh, six weeks later. Bruce Farmer was one of the first employees at TY Point. Because I always used to hitchhike down to the mountains and go climbing, uh, I thought I'll, I'll see if I can get that job there uh, so I can be close to the mountains. After a year learning the business in Camelco's Bell Bay smelter in Australia, Farmer came back to help launch TY Point. The buildings were built and we were building the, the pots or the furnaces, you know, getting all the, the tools that we needed, uh, organising things, uh, setting up crews. In fact, another person employed at the same time as me, John Weston, and I, uh, we went off and hired the first 200 operators for running the pot rooms. And that was quite a exercise because I'd really never interviewed anyone before in my life. And, uh, and so I was thrown in the deep end and uh, we got wonderful people. They were good, strong, hardworking, practical Southlanders and people who had made Southland their home. And uh, we were very, very lucky. We had uh, some excellent people. So we had to train everybody, um, build the pots, and, and then prepare for startup. Startup. 23rd of April, 1971. The moment the whole country had been waiting for. Millions of dollars of public money had gone into making sure it was a success. The controversy around Lake Minipodi was still swirling. All eyes were on TY. If I could use modern language, I would say it's a happening. This is Sir Keith Holyoke, who was still PM at the official opening of TY Point in 1971. This great international enterprise will bring greater employment, greater profit, greater pleasure, higher standards of living for all the people of New Zealand. For Farmer, it was the culmination of months of hard work. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ah, that, well, it, uh, you know, you were charging towards a deadline like any construction project. There's a, there's a go date and uh, you're working hard. My crew, we started the, the first pots, pots one, three and five at TY Point, And we dry fluxed them. That meant we, they were heated up for a day with large amounts of electrical current going into them. And then we poured in powdered cryolite, which is sodium aluminium fluoride, and the, the furnace arcs and spits, and, <laughs> and uh, they don't dry flux normally. Once, once you've started a, a furnace uh, that way, you never want to do it again. For the next week, Farmer and his crews were starting pots at a rate of three a day. And after five days, my tapper was Brian Fox, and he drew the first metal with a giant vacuum cleaner type thing. Uh, we call it a crucible, and it sucked the metal out from the bottom of the pot and that was the first medal that went to the cast house for casting. It was a moment to celebrate. Oh, it was wonderful. Yes, we all cast samples of metal into the, the moulds, or the, they're called mushroom moulds, but the, the mere fact that we got metal 
was cause for celebration, but we were we were stuffed. We were dog tired. It was hard work. We were pleased, but in terms of celebration, uh, it was just a, a sense of satisfaction, I think. I've never been inside a smelter, but Farmer describes the pot room as a building about three quarters of a kilometre long with rows and rows of cells or pots, which are each about seven metres long and four metres wide. The energy through each cell keeping them warm would be more than half a megawatt of power for each cell. God, it's, it's six or 7,000 horsepower. So these things are great and docile like a, a horse that's standing, but if you lose control of it and uh, you get burn-offs where the anodes start failing, it's like herding you know, 14,000 horses, and they're wild. And in those early days, the horses would sometimes get loose. Oh, yes. You would come into what you called a sick pot, A sick pot was one that was way overheated, so hot that anodes taking the power into the cells would melt the cast iron holding them. And these big blocks of carbon would drop into the furnace. We call them burn-offs. And you would have to go up onto the pot and fish them out with big steel tongs that if they were in the bath for too long would just become soft and and they themselves would melt. (laughs) So, uh, and you're in with... um, normal cotton clothing. And of course, this is a situation which is not in control, but you might have three or four sick pots that you were working on in a a shift, and they could get so hot that you couldn't control them, and then you would have to cut them out of circuit. You would switch them off. And at that particular point, you know, you feel that you failed, because that, that was a big deal to lose one of these furnaces. It was a true trial by fire. It wasn't uncommon for you to come in and maybe change 30 to 50 and more burn-offs in an eight-hour shift. As we got better, we learned to control things better. Now you had that one in a shift, you'd be thinking, gosh, there's something seriously wrong here. You know, what what, what have we messed up? (laughs) Um, But the work that all those people put in to learn their skills and and to set the foundation for, for the future... Uh, they were remarkable people, remarkably strong uh, and, and tenacious and uh, hardworking, real settlers. Farmer recalls cold bluff nights spent at work. We were right on the sea at, next to Fovo Strait that was only, you know, a couple of hundred metres away and, and then southerly winds, the winds would come up from the Antarctic and you're starting a night shift at, uh, you know, at, at midnight and, uh, and <laughs> you know, when, you, when things were under control and you'd often sit on the, the aluminium bus bar, which took all the power into the pots. And, of course, even aluminium, which is an excellent conductor, uh, there is some heat generated and, and you could sit on those and be warm. Like he says, the human resources were key. You know, working shift work, I mean, it's like, Nurses working in hospitals, it's, it's like people working in steel plants or, or miners going underground. You are relying on people doing work that you can do safely or if you do it carelessly, it would be done dangerously. And you're dealing with hard physical work where people and their stamina is tested so you get to know people very well. It was hard but rewarding work. We were actually manufacturing something. We, we, we took this, we used New Zealand electricity, we used our New Zealand skills, and, and we produced aluminium that the country needed for 
electrical conductors, for all of the buildings, the aluminium windows, you know, for the electronics industry. I mean, we were... We were really doing something worthwhile. They were making the world's purest aluminium. It's like 99.9% pure. And that isn't all that goes on at TY either. You have people casting alloys to make the alloys for aluminium wheels, for aircraft wings, for all, all sorts of different alloys. And then you have the people in the carbon plant producing the carbon electrodes. You have people reconstructing and building the cells. And then you have a, a huge body of maintenance people, uh, fitters and turners, electricians. T.Y. Point is a massive industrial complex. In its first year, T.Y. produced 42,000 tonnes of metal. Last year, it made more than 300,000 tonnes. In the last 50 years, it's weathered industrial strikes and the worldwide energy crisis. There have been developments too. A third reduction line was constructed as part of Muldoon's Think Big Economic Stimulus Scheme in the 80s. Don't waste, don't waste that can. Aluminium cans and the recycling of them was a huge deal through my childhood in the 80s. And in 1996, the smelter got a $465 million revamp. Today, T.Y. Point is Southland's second biggest workplace, employing around 1,000 people. According to the website, it contributes more than $400 million to the Southland economy every year. But it also uses more than 10% of the entire country's electricity. Its closure, just like the opening, will have a big impact. I'm sure the people of Southland hope the smelter will continue. It's an interest to all Southlanders, the TY smelter, when you're producing the best, some of the best quality aluminium in the world. Anything that we can't grow has to be mined and produced like aluminium at, at T.Y. Point. So it's the basis for our comfortable lives. The company will make its decision, I think, on the basis of the economics of aluminium production. On its own terms, presumably the government will have to wear whatever the decision is. These things um, affect everybody and it's uh, downstream. It doesn't matter what happens, it'll affect the Aucklanders and it'll affect everybody. There's an awful lot at stake. Thanks for listening to this episode of Eyewitness, produced by me, Liz Garten, and engineered by the wonderful Blair Stagpole. This brilliant song, called Kamalco, is by Max McCauley. Thanks so much to Houghton Hughes for letting us use it. For more on T.Y. Point, I can fully recommend Clive Lund's beautiful book, The People and the Power. And I'd especially like to thank Bruce, Sir Alan and John for sharing their recollections and Ngā Taonga for the archival audio. Thanks also to Andrea Carson at New Zealand Aluminium Smelters for sharing the great photos you can see on our webpage and one of the funniest books I've read all year. For other great RNZ podcasts like Voices, check out rnz.co.nz. Eyewitness and all our podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts or whatever platform you like to use. If you can, subscribe and rate us. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 